Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Uh, this is the second part of a two-part series on the history of Silicon Valley, um, the development of the internet, uh, the role it plays in the kind of broadest historical spectrum, and we're incredibly privileged to have as our guest, um, absolute titan of the internet, Mark Andreessen, developer of the web browser, um, one of the profoundest thinkers and investors um, in this field. And, and the first billionaire to have ever appeared on The Rest is History. Yes, Dominic, you're obsessed with... I am. I am. I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm above that. I've, I've I, never I, spoken I, to somebody who's as rich, I mean, just so colossally rich and... But also such a... I mean, he'll be remembered when, you know, the man who, who, who popularised the web browser is much more important than any number of prime ministers. I'm not denying that, but it's... I'm just above worrying about wealth. I know. A nobler and better person than you. I, I know, anyway, let's, listeners. Let, that, what an utter, <laughs> utter lie that is. <laughs> let's, let's move on. Um, so in the previous episode, we were, um, we were discussing social media. Yes, uh, we, we'd just come we, to it, hadn't we? We'd yeah, come to Facebook. that. So Facebook has, has basically been invented. Um, Mark Andreessen is on the, the board of Facebook today. Um, so uh, he's investor in Twitter, all kinds of things like that as well. So a guy who knows infinitely more about it. <laughs> but no one knows more do. about Twitter than you, Tom. I mean, you tweet more than about the rest of the population put together, don't you? You and the other Tom Holland. Yeah, but I'm the user. He's the supplier. Right. Yeah. And it's the, the supplier knows more You know, than nothing makes my day more than when you get <laughs> birthday wishes or a, a, uh, a tweet asking for an autograph or something from a teenage girl in Tuscaloosa. Because <laughs> I know how much it annoys you. <laughs> I always enjoy it. It's hilarious. Um, <laughs> the one thing that really annoys me is people who think that I've never heard a joke about my name being the same name as the guy who plays Spider-Man. Yeah. That's the great I mean, thing about it. You see, that's the joke that never stops giving. It, it was quite, I mean, it was quite <laughs> funny in kind of 47 AD. <laughs> <laughs> right. We've got Mark Andreessen or we had Mark Andreessen rather. We spoke to him and we should bring him on, shouldn't we? We should just stop wittering to each other. Um, we started by asking Mark about what I see as a tension at the heart of social media. So on the one hand, social media is supposed to be a great collective endeavor, bringing people together and uniting people across the world. This is part of Facebook's entire ethos, of course. But at the same time, it's something that you do on your own. And there's always a tendency to kind of retreat, as I see it, into silos or bubbles of like-minded people and to kind of screen out the rest of the world. So we asked him about that and whether he thinks that social media really does bring the world together. Well, so, you know, let's, let's take on the, the sort of filter bubble or the silo thing right up front. And I, I know you guys, I listened to your, your uh, Coffeehouse podcast last night, and I, you guys talked about this a little bit. But, you know, there has been this criticism of the Internet um, kind of the whole time. And, and I think, there, by the way, there is some truth to it, right? And the, and the criticism is this, because they call the filter bubble criticism, which basically is the Internet lets you, you know, good news, bad news. The internet lets you find people who are exactly like you, right? So the whatever thing you're into, whatever you know, hobby you have, whatever interest you have, whatever politics you have, whatever religion you have, like it doesn't matter. You know, 
up until the internet, like if you did not grow up around people who shared that interest, you didn't have anybody to talk to who, who shared that interest. And with the internet, all of a sudden, you can go find people who just happen to correspond exactly to your preconceptions. Um, and that could be a really wonderful thing. And that can also be, you know, the argument goes a really terrible thing, right? Because it, it, you know, echo chambers, you know, reinforces, you know, maybe this sort of cult-like behavior, um, you know, that you do see. Um, you know, I think there's a truth to that, but I think there's also an, another truth, and the research on filter bubbles actually has demonstrated this other truth. The other truth is the internet also makes it much more likely you're going to encounter people who disagree, right? So, yeah. like a lot of people in real life, as we say, IRL in real life, <laughs> um, uh, a lot of people in real life, you know, and this this is sort of let's let's say this is like characteristic, for example, of a lot of highly educated people. Right. A lot of highly educated people grow up in these college towns. Right. And their parents are like college professors or something or professionals of some kind. And they grow up in these sort of relatively kind of insulated environments where everybody around them is like highly educated and, you know, kind of middle class, upper middle class um, and often from, you know, a relatively narrow, you know, kind of selection of nationalities or ethnic groups. And, you know, and they, they basically in real life, they're only talking to people who are like themselves. Um, and then, you know, and by the way, the same thing's true of rural America, the same thing's true of urban America, right? It's, it's the same thing's true of you know, lots of places around the world. Um, you know, people grow up in these kind of real world filter bubbles. And then you go on the internet and it's like you get slammed into this kaleidoscope of lots of people, <laughs> believe yeah. lots of other things, right? Um, and so all of a sudden for the first time, like you can't, you can't retreat anymore. Like you actually can't retreat. It's the opposite, right? You're getting kind of shoved into um, this much more, you know, cacophonous, you know, you know, should I say diverse, um, you know, uh, fragmented, um, you know, um, uh, you know, superheated, you know, or, you know, tons of arguments. Um, you know, what, why do people get sucked into arguing online? Right. You know, there's a famous cartoon, which is, uh, you know, sorry, honey, I, I can't come to bed right now. Somebody is wrong on the internet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> right. Like, why do people get sucked into arguing online? Right. Which has become kind of the national or the global hobby. It's because like there are people, you know, you just are slammed into running, you know, slammed into people's people who really don't agree with you. Um, and so I, I think that, that that is the other side of it. So on the, on the coffee shop analogy. The, the the development of the printing press, the the growth of literacy, the um the ability of of people to read stuff that previously they hadn't been able to read, uh, I mean, you know, people then are able to kind of find people like them, but also they're able to find things that they really disagree with, and it has a transformative effect on the on the the fabric and the culture of seventeenth, eighteenth century life. Do you think that um, the internet is having a kind of analogous effect? that it's amplifying the way in which people both agree and disagree with one another in ways that is kind of having a direct impact on politics in the US, Europe, whatever. Yeah, and in fact, I, I think I would, and again, it took me a long time to come to grips with this, both because it's complicated and also because as a Midwesterner, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to talk too dramatically about work I'm involved in. But um, I think it's hard, it's hard to argue any, any other thesis than, than what you just stated. And I, I take it a step further, which is I think the, I think the internet brings a level of intensity um, to um, consuming information, uh, to communicating with other people, to having arguments, to being a part of a movement, um, you know, to being a part of a scene, uh, to feeling like you're a part of history, to feeling, you know, like you're, you know, fully connected to the kind of the flow of politics and to cultural and social changes. Um, the level of intensity the internet provides, it seems to me, is just way beyond um, anything yeah. previous, yeah. right? Like. You know, you just like the the rush of what happens when you get wrapped into these things online is just so far beyond the experience that you know you you know and and it's it's so striking, right? To kind of think about the history, you know, 
can you, I don't know if you guys can, can you visualize what it would have been like to be part of the first generation that learned how to read um, and then, and then, you know, had access to a book, right? And, you know, and obviously people got like <laughs> very enthusiastic about the Bible, um, right? Like, you know, they went off and, you know, wars and like all this stuff to follow. And so clearly they had, they had, they had this, you know, very high level of animating passion, but like, you know, in, in our time, right? It's hard to imagine anybody getting that fired up about a book, um, but boy, are they getting fired up online? But, and so but, I think it's the, right. But, sorry if I can jump in, Mark. But uh, to go back to, to to combine your the point you just made with Tom's previous point about about the printing press. So in the first sort of decades after the invention of the printing press, you have this explosion of print culture and and colossal consequences. I mean, pr- the Protestant Reformation and so on. So the new technology goes hand in hand with an intensity that then drives political change. Do you think that the the intense politics of the last, let's say, 10, 15 years, so in America, the obvious example is the rise and fall of Donald Trump. I mean, that wouldn't have been possible without the internet, without social media, right? I mean, he used Twitter to communicate and his opponents used social media to kind of whip themselves into a frenzy of outrage at every new thing that he did. I mean, so so the internet, it's not just that it it creates a particular kind of politics, a very sort of assertive, maybe aggressive, strident politics, doesn't it? Well, so I sort of half agree. Um, and the reason I half agree, of course, is because you know, Trump is far from the first populist, right? Right. Agreed. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Because before Trump, you had, you know, when I was, you know, when I was, when I was younger, Ross Perot, like almost won the presidency, right? He was a very Trump-like figure. You know, before that, obviously, you had, you know, Huey Long, right? William Jennings Bryan. And, and, you know, so, and then of course, you know, talking about populists, right. You know, you had, you know, your Hitlers and your Mussolinis, um, right. Um, it's, it's, you know, everybody's like, oh my God, the internet's responsible for the rise of fascism, right. And, it, you know, in the modern world. And it's like, well, you know, we, I, you know, we actually had fascism like 70, 80 years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, that Hitler fellow, say what you will, like he didn't have access to the internet. So, um, you know, somehow he figured out a way to do it with, you know, <laughs> but, but he's the, always the, on the, the internet old... now, isn't he? He's yeah, always, he's always <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> God, you guys say Godwin's law. There's actually a law of the internet. Says, yes, every every discussion inevitably becomes a discussion about Hitler. Um, so, um, uh, you know, so it, so it's like basically, it's like there, there is no, you know, there, there, like in a sense, there's nothing new, uh, you know, kind of about the politics of our era. And I, I would even say that in maybe a set of a disappointing way, which is it feels at least to me like we're kind of rehashing, you know, kind of old and settled, you know, debates and arguments from, you know, whether 30 years ago or 70 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, um, and so, so, so therefore establishing causation is hard. And so I guess, I guess the way I would put it is like, I don't know that the internet, I, I don't think the internet for sure, the internet didn't cause populism or by the way, the same thing, right? The resurgence of this, you know, kind of, you know, kind of more, let's say primal kind of leftism, you know, at the same time, which is sort of, you can kind of see in both, you know, kind of wokeness on the one hand, but also kind of this re-rise of socialism, uh, you know, on the other hands, right? So the, the corresponding kind of, you know, thing is happening on the left. But again, there it's like, you know, identity politics are not new with the internet. They were a big deal in the 1960s pre the internet. Um, and of course, ethnic and racial division is not new. Um, it's very old. Um, and then, you know, socialism is not new, right? And, you know, again, the socialism, you know, the Russian Revolution, you know, happened on the basis of what, like the mimeograph machine. Um, so, um, and, you know, in-person organizing. So, so you know, do these technologies create these things? I don't think so. Um, uh, on the other hand, I think there's a, at least my model is basically the technology of the time is, it's like, it's the conduit. Uh, for these things. And then it's, you know, you might say the amplifier um, or, you know, the organizing, um, you know, kind of agent. 
Um, and so, you know, if the Nazi party, for example, was a consequence of, you know, radio and the Russian revolution was a consequence of mimeograph machines, like, you know, th again, those are, those are very primal ideas, um, you know, but they flowed through the technology of that time. Um, and now we have this, well, then, and then you could argue the other side of that, which is, you know, now we have this sort of, I would argue, kind of much more, you know, or say even more uh, visceral um, uh, form of technology um that's even more present in people's lives that's even more powerful uh than the ones that came before um and so it, maybe it's maybe it's old ideas but being expressed in new ways and, and 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 leading to different consequences by the way let me let me add one other theory right which is you know whenever you had like at least my understanding of history is like you know before the internet if you had like a basically a mass political movement right it was characterized by street activity right like you yes. have you know fights and riots and you know you'd have yeah. like you know bloodshed People getting killed, you know, big public strikes and protests and all these things. And of course, you know, we, we you know, we do have, you know, from time to time we have activity in the streets, uh, you know, in the U.S. But like <laughs> there's another argument, basically, which is the Internet is a substitution for real world activity. Right. And so there, there, there's a more benign kind of uh, projection here, which is maybe the Internet greatly inflames politics and gets everybody all heated up. But maybe people are basically <laughs> too busy pounding away at their keyboards to go out into the streets. Yeah. Though, of course, um, something like the Arab Spring. I mean, that's a good example of something where the internet did get people out in the streets, didn't it? I mean, yeah, that's were... right. And in fact, and in fact, one of the things that political that repressive political regimes learned from the Arab Spring and that which they grapple with today when, when these things happen, which is, um, OK, what happens when there's like mass political movement online and where you even have real world protests being organized online? If you're a repressive political regime, the very first thing you think of is I'm going to shut off that that Internet. Right. right? I'm going to kill, kill the switch. And of course, that is the guaranteed way now to get everybody in the street. Or, right, or, so, yeah. or, 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 Mark, I mean, looking at the Taliban, you know, they're on Twitter. And, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to, you know, they'll give us their preferred pronouns. Uh, it's, I mean, it, it's just, <laughs> you know, they, they're on Twitter, whereas Donald Trump isn't. Um, and in a, in a sense, perhaps, you know, the go-getting uh, totalitarian, you, you get on social media and you kind of... Uh, you you manicure your message, right? You I mean, manicure the message, you could, yeah. I mean, so I mean, I saw a meme the other day is that the Taliban would like you to know that their preferred pronouns are he, him. Yeah, right. I don't think there's much doubt about that. <laughs> so that the internet could well, be. Then, well, then there's this other, well, there's this other question, right? Which flows from what you just said, which is basically to what extent is the internet actually, you know, there, yes, the internet may, you know, to some extent drive division and so forth, but, 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 but maybe the sort of broader impact of the internet is that it's a giant assimilation machine, right? And it's a giant assimilation, assimilation machine into Western culture broadly defined. Right. And it's a, you know, it's, a, right. it's the Joseph Henrich, you know, weird cult, you know, kind of weird, uh, you know, kind of concept, yeah. which is, you know, maybe the Internet, maybe. And again, this is sort of like if you, if you were a traditionalist, you would basically say the Internet, basically, you know, basically, if you're a traditionalist, you'd say modern media and modern culture for the last whatever, you know, decades and centuries has always, you know, has been ripping people out of their historical cultures, you know, for, for a long time now. But the, the internet will complete that process. Like the internet is just going to rip every kid out of whatever the local culture is. Well, that's um, that, and, you know, kind of, right. That you mentioned um, wokeness. Wokeness is a, <laughs> we often uh, have a little have a little segue into discussions of wokeness in this podcast. And obviously, there's there's an argument in Britain, for example, that a lot of the argument about the kind of woke culture here is an Americanization of our own kind of national culture. That basically, because of so many people are on social media, so many opinion formers. They look at what's happening in the States and they just import it. Do you think there's, I mean, to what extent do you think the internet, I mean, in some ways, because you are a Midwesterner and everything, you're the completely the wrong person to ask. But to <laughs> what extent is the kind of internet and social, to what extent are they massive engines of Americanization, do you think? 
So I think that's the case. And this, you know, this this can easily sound triumphalist, which is not kind of how I intend it. In fact, I think there might be real significant, you know, downsides to this. But I, I think there's a very powerful argument to be made. Well, look, it's the same argument people have been making about Hollywood forever, right? Um, yeah. Which is sort of, you know, you know, Clint East, you know, there's an argument used to be made about Hollywood, which is, you know, Clint Eastwood kind of defined a, a sort of image of masculinity that went global, um, right? And so you've got kids, you know, all over the world in the 1960s, 1970s who were like, you know, aha, <laughs> you know, it's that's what I want to be like, right? And so, you know, this this is, it's an older idea, but yeah, the internet, again, it's just, it's so visceral. Um, uh, it pulls you in like so dramatically. Uh, it's such an intense experience. Um, you know, I, you know, there's a language component to it, right? Which is, you know, the internet is overwhelmingly English language. And so it must um, be entrenching it, it, the status of English as the global lingua franca, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, well, I'll just tell you, here's a phenomenon we now routinely see, which we didn't see before. So the newly arrived entrepreneurs, the global entrepreneurs coming from all over the world to come to Silicon Valley that are in their early 20s now, um, they show up here. They don't have they don't have accents. They speak completely fluent American English. Um, and I always ask, like, how did you get so good at English? And it's like, well, they said, and they look at me like I'm like I'm you know puzzled. And they're like, YouTube, right? right. Like, yeah, right. And so yeah, so there's there's a language component. Obviously, you know, language itself is a is a culture carrier, uh, as the French will tell you. Um, and then um, yeah, and then there's just all of the other there's just all of the other components that go. I mean, no, there's the really fundamental things, which is just like you know the basic idea of uncontrolled flow of information, right? Is just is something that comes with the internet that you know that people are you know freak out about all the time. But like that, of course, is a very Western, you know, kind of thing. And you know, it's very specifically like you know an American thing with with, with freedom of speech as a sort of a primary thing. Um, and then yeah, there's um, yeah, just all of yeah all of the attitudes. Um, uh, you know, there's this debate online a while ago that I found really interesting. So Brian Kaplan, the economist, basically said, don't, uh, you know, basically he called Western civilization. He said everybody's always worried about kind of Western civilization getting buried. Or, um, and he said it's, it's, he called it the hardy weed. Um, and he basically made this argument that Western civilization is kind of going to spread and eat everything. And then Scott Alexander basically argued it's not Western civilization. It's universal civilization because basically it's basically it's Western civilization, but incorporating all of the best elements of everybody else's culture. Right. And so just as an example, you know, Japanese anime has gone global on the Internet. Right. And it's sort right. of like Korean Japanese pop. anime has been kind of embraced yeah. into kind of the Western conception of, of entertainment and media in a way that it wasn't before the Internet. And so so Scott would say it's going to be everybody's culture kind of munched. It, 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 the positive view of these kids, everybody's culture kind of munched together, including the best of everybody's culture. Um, and that's maybe the most utopian view. Well, we're, we're all in favor of utopian views. And I think that um, that would actually be a perfect note to go to a break. Um, so we will see you back after the break. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on The Rest is History, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest 
with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash rest is history. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking the internet as um, one of the great revolutionary forces in world history. And we are with Mark Andreessen, who, Mark, you wrote a, a famous essay, um, how, how software is, is eating the world. Um, and I guess, I, I mean, there's almost something there perhaps of Marx, who's said of capitalism, you know, famously, that all that is solid melts into air, the way that it, it kind of has this ability to transform and devour everything traditional, everything solid. Um, do you think, is that a reasonable way to describe the the impact of the internet, the way that software has um, you know, given us Netflix rather than Blockbuster, it's given us Amazon rather than Borders? So I think that that's true. Um, but then there's also a deeper thing, which is what I tried to get to in the original uh, software, it's the world essay, which is, the internet is a from, viewed through a technological lens. Um, the internet is a carrier of software, um, and we kind of take software a little bit for granted now because you know we everybody uses software and everybody knows what an app is and so forth. Um, and so it kind of seems like it's obvious what software is. But like there's a there's a deep truth to software which I, I think maybe is still still underestimated. Which basically, um, <laughs> and this is kind of what got me interested in all this stuff when I was a kid to start with. Is this Software is like as close to magic as you can get in the real world. Um, and, and I often specifically use the metaphor of alchemy, um, right? Which is software, you know, so it's like you know, famously with, with alchemy, it was a search for the, whatever it was called, the, the, the whatever the magic, the magic uh, formula. That was 
right? That would philosopher's stone that would turn let you know turn something that was abundant lead into something that was rare and valuable gold. Um, well, software basically is the philosopher's stone for turning um, literally, quite literally, typing on a keyboard, right, into changes in the real world, right? So, like, what's the easiest thing in the world to do is to sit and type on a keyboard, and what's the hardest thing in the world to do is like, you know, elect a new politician, you know, elect a new president, <laughs> right, or like, you know, create a new like global business, or like, you know, convince all these cars to all of a sudden be picking up riders. Um, or, you know, convince people to open up their homes and, you know, take in people, you know, to uh, be able to stay in their homes, you know, references yeah. to like Uber and Airbnb. Um, right. Uh, or by the way, you know, even software to get everybody to kind of realize that their friends are all online and connected and then they can talk to all their friends um, in the form of Facebook. And so it's basically like in, in every one of these things, every time software is used to do anything, it, you know, somebody has sat at a keyboard, somebody has typed in these sort of magical incantations, right, in this kind of weird sorcery language, right? Um, and then at some point they press enter and then the real world changes, right? Things change. The car starts to drive itself, right? <laughs> um, you know, really, really amazing changes actually happen in the real world. And so it's this, it's this, it's this lever, right? It's this, it's this basically, it's this, you know, it's this, it's this giant lever where if you want to change something in the real world, like the easiest and most powerful way to do it now is to write software. Um, and and I would say like that, that fact is like, you know, that's the dominant fact of my basically entire life, but you know, my entire career is venture capitalist. This is what all of our companies do. You know, all of, you know, basically, you know, almost all of the really great entrepreneurial kids in the world now are motivated to start this kind of business to do this kind of thing. Um, you know, um, and so it, this, this, this is probably still a greatly, it, it is still a greatly underestimated factor. It's like software is sort of still visualized by a lot of people as like a separate computer thing. And it's really not that anymore. It's like woven into basically all of reality at this point. Yeah. But that, but Mark, that has consequences. I mean, for good and ill, right? I mean, if I, yep. if I, if I, if I terminate this conversation now and go and walk down, the street in five minutes, I'll be in a uh, high street, what we would call main street. And it's full of, let's say, you know, storefronts that are unoccupied. I, and and there are, I mean, around the world, if this revolution speeds up and if AI has the effect that people think it will, that's going to cause colossal political and that's going to pose these immense political and economic challenges, isn't it? For, for not just for us, but for our successors <laughs> and for their successors and so on. Well, so massive change. For sure, um, you know, no question. Um, you know, you often at this point in these conversations, you get to like these sort of dystopian, um, you know, kind of economic projections where people, you know, kind of, you know, the, you know, the classic one is, well, you know, new technology will lead to mass unemployment, right? Uh, right, because if we have software doing all these things, then what will what will the people do? Um, you know, if you put your economist hat on, you basically say that's not what happens, right? And the reason that's not what happens, it, the technology never leads to mass unemployment, and the reason, of course, is because what technology represents is increase in productivity, right, in economic terms, right? The, the technology is a way to do more with less. Yeah. Um, when you when you do more with less, you increase societal wealth, right? As you increase societal wealth, you actually increase consumer demand. You increase consumer spending power, right? You you literally you quite literally create new demand. You create new you know ability for people to be able to pay for and afford things, and then you know new industries, new fields, new activities get created that ends up soaking up all the all the um, you know all the all, all the labor. But do you think the experience of the pandemic has, has been an illustration of that? That the economic devastation has been much less than people thought it would well, be. Yeah, well, there were two parts. So there were two parts to this that, that's so striking. And so basically, uh, so yeah, so, so two things. So one is, you know, basically from like 2010 to 2019, at least the American press was absolutely full of, I would say, outright Luddite, you know, theories. It was all this. It was this just nonstop drumbeat of like the Internet's going to destroy all the jobs and robots are going to, you know, whatever. And you're, nobody's going to have anything to do. And it's going to be this dystopian, dystopian thing. And then basically what happened was up to March 2020, I'm oh, sorry, up to January 2020, when COVID first appeared, um, 
In January 2020, the American economy, right after 250 years of like furiously, you know, onrushing technological change, including the full impact of the internet and software and all the stuff that was happening up until January 2020, right, resulted in the best consumer economy and the best employment economy in the history of the United States. Right. So in, in January of 2020, you know, unemployment in the U.S. was at all time lows. Unemployment among the lowest skilled and educated in the U.S. was at all time lows. You know, incomes were at all time highs, job growth, you know, wages actually were rising. Wages in, as of January 2020, wages were rising faster for lower income people than they were for higher income people. Right. So you were actually starting to get a re reinvigoration of wage growth. Right. Which is what, what you get when you get a productivity boom. Um, and so it was quite literally like the best economy we've had in maybe forever um, in January 2020. It was it was great. And then, of course, COVID arrives. Right. Um, and exactly to your point, like I was like, you know, like a lot of people, I just got totally freaked out by COVID early on. And in part was like, oh, my God, we're going to voluntarily you know, we're going to take basically the best economy we've ever had. That, by the way, completely disproves all these Luddite theories. Um, and we're going to kill it. Like we're going to voluntarily kill it. Um, because we're going to shut it down because we're going to go into these lockdowns and we're, we're going to, you know, we're, and, and basically, right, from an economic standpoint, the lockdowns, basically, it's a it's a simultaneous killing of the demand side of the economy because you're telling people they have to stay home and they can't spend money. Um, and it's a it's a it's a killing of the supply side of the economy, which is you're shutting down all the factories, right, all the, all the production uh, uh, capabilities. And so I was like, you know, basically, oh, my God, like Great Depression 2.0, like, you know, this is going to be a real problem. Um, to your point, it turned out, right? Well, part of what happened, obviously, was just like mass government subsidies, you know, a huge, you know, pr printing of trillions of dollars and, and all, the, all these new social benefits. Basically, we've been we've been piloting UBI, um, at least in the U.S. Um, and uh, and then but yeah, look, part of what happened was basically all of these online forms of activity basically got shoved forward by, you know, I think as much as a decade. Right. Um, and so all of a sudden you have this massive share shift, uh, you know, from, um, you know, offline, you know, from retail stores that couldn't, literally could not be open. Uh, all of a sudden e-commerce, you have this massive share shift from schools to online, you know, kind of physical classrooms, to online education. You have this massive share shift from commercial office space to, you know, teleconferencing. Um, and yeah, that the, the, the consequences of the, the true long term consequences of this period may have much less to do with the health issues. It may have much more to do with the economic transformation that this has really uh, accelerated. And do you think um let's let's talk a little about the the politics go back to the politics so there's always a sense that silicon valley and the the digital revolution all these things i mean precisely because they are moving the the focus away from you know factories organized labor all those kinds of things that they are a force for kind of libertarianism and sort of anti state you know that they um, you know tech companies don't want governments interfering with them um, they sort of create that sense that that you're the agent, you know, you're not you you know you sitting in front of the screen, you're the the master of your own destiny, and so on. Do you think that's true? Do you think in the future, um, as we move more online and as tech plays a bigger and bigger role in our lives, that we will become more libertarian and we will become, in a sense, more well, I mean, it's a silly way of referring to it, but more right wing in that way. Yeah, so I start by saying is there's a certain truth uh, to the theory, and and that certain truth is you know there is a libertarian wing to the tech industry, um, and there has been for a very long time. Um, you know, in in our time, it's been you know kind of around you know this uh, my you know my friend Peter Thiel, um, who's become you know kind of one of these one of these great uh, one of these great American characters, um, you know, who's just an absolute genius and is very inspirational for a lot of people, but is you know is sort of famously a libertarian and kind of has a has a culture that kind of orbits around him uh, of libertarianism. Um, and so, you know, there is there is that, uh, you know, there is that component. Um, 
just in, in 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 reality though basically like that's a it's a fringe um of the politics of the, of the valley at least of uh, the american tech industry um overwhelmingly the american tech industry is sort of what you just call classic just progressive liberal right um and you can see you can see this by the way very clearly in the numbers you can see this in the voting patterns in the bay area and you can see it in the political donations like you take the typical big tech company um or any cluster of people in silicon valley you think the entrepreneurs would be the same way or the venture capital firms would be the same way um you know it's like in, during the 2016 cycle, it's like, you know, whatever, 97% of the money or something went to, um, you know, uh, went to Hillary Clinton, right? And like, you know, yeah. 0.0001% right. went to Donald Trump. And, then, and Donald, know, Trump, Donald little, Trump is not on Twitter anymore. Um, right, exactly, right, exactly. Well, you know, so like, yeah, so, uh, you know, now Trump that was not libertarian, but like, you know, it is, it is no, you know, for all of the gnashing of the teeth around, you know, the tech industry and Trump, like, you know, Peter, Peter was the only, you know, tech donor uh, to Donald Trump. Like he, he was, you know, N of one um so um but but yeah you know then look there's like a little scattering you know you'll see a little scattering of money to Rand Paul or something or to whatever the libertarian candidate was in 2016 but it's really on the margin it's it's almost entirely uh the standard liberal progressive democrat um and i think the reason for that it's it's a very prosaic explanation which is kind of almost too boring to talk about which is just the tech industry is composed of people who are kind of highly educated um you know they're highly open um and uh they're very socially progressive you know yeah. exactly exactly as you'd expect from any sort of elite knowledge industry in the modern era and they have the they have overwhelmingly the exact politics um of their peers in the entertainment industry or in the finance industry or in any of these other uh, sort of knowledge work industries um you know <laughs> architects and graphic designers and it's all the same so it's it's overwhelmingly standard leftism um and i don't i don't really see any signs that um uh i don't really if anything that that's intensifying um if anything the the, the valley's good going for the left i mean i wonder if it's even more fundamental than that i mean I was, you, you were talking about um you know books how amazing it would have been for the first time to read a book and there's there's a famous famous passage in one of plato's dialogues where he he describes the egyptian god thoth coming to the pharaoh and saying look i've invented writing <laughs> and pharaoh is absolutely appalled <laughs> this, this, this is going to have a devastating effect we're not going to have it and it's evident that um you know that plato basically kind of agrees with this because plato is a massive conservative even though of course he's writing it down and there is a sense isn't there that you know in every great convulsive period of change there are people whose instinct is to say, this is going to be terrible. This is going to be for the worst. Why can't things just stay the way they are? And then there are others who say, yes, this is incredible. This has you know, amazing opportunities. And I would guess, I mean, you're looking at what you've written about it, that you're absolutely someone who, who thinks, yeah, you know, this is, this is, this is great. Your, your dreams in the nineties, I guess, have pretty much been fulfilled, haven't they? Yeah. So look, you know, I guess I say more than anything else, um, I, I had this conversation with Andy Grove once years ago and he's, you know, talking about the impacts of new technology and he's to a certain extent, he just kind of waved it away, the, the, the topic away. And I was like, I, I can't believe you're not, you know, I was like, I can't believe you're not more interested in this. Like, you know, you're, you're the, you're the chip guy. Like you must, you must think about the consequences of these. And he, he basically said, he's like, look, it's like once new technology arrives, like, it's like, you know, it's like what, you know, like sort of writing or like steel, like one day we don't have steel, the next day we have steel. Right. Um, or by the way, one day we don't have nuclear weapons. The next day we have nuclear weapons. Like the, the, the primary mm -hmm. thing that happens is, OK, it's here. Right. It, like to some extent, these debates are actually not useful or at least he viewed them as not useful because it's like it's here. It's not it's not you're never going backwards. Like you're never putting the genie back in the bottle. Um, uh, and so, you know, it's just it's just like it's, it's just like air. Now you have air. Congratulations. Right. Like everybody's going to breathe. There's no debate. Like it's just going to happen. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's an extent to which it's just simply like, you know, this, this, this technology, once, once people figure out, you know, kind of what's possible and they build it, you, you, you don't put it back in the bottle. Now, 
you know, if you're not an engineer, you know, that sounds a little bit insane. It makes it, it sounds a little bit like engineers kind of think that they're just kind of on autopilot. They should just build whatever they want. They don't bear more responsibility for anything. Um, you know, my, my, my big counter argument to that would be, I think engineers have a terrible track record of predicting both the negative and the positive consequences of their new, new technologies. Um, you know, my, my favorite example of that was Thomas Edison. Uh, you know, Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. Um, and, uh, you know, he was completely convinced as a proper, you know, God-fearing wasp of his generation, he was completely convinced that the killer app for the phonograph was going to be to reinforce, you know, existing religions because you would, you, people would finally be able to have their own home libraries of sermons. Right on wax records. And, and of course, to him, it was the most natural thing in the world. You'd put in a hard day's work in the factory. Um, you'd come home at night, you'd have dinner, and then you'd put on a sermon. And you'd sit, the family would sit around and listen to the sermon. Right. Um, and so <laughs> it turns out people yeah. didn't want that. It turns out they wanted this, you know, very evil devil music called jazz. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so, you know, the technologists have a, you know, I don't know that the technologists have any sort of real track record for predicting consequences. Um, I don't think I don't know that the non-technologists have a very good you know record of of, of, uh, of predicting the consequences of new technology. Um, you know, tech, technology is you know by the very nature it is just a tool. Um, it is you know human beings who decide how to use everything. Yeah. Um, nobody's ever been able to figure out how to put anything back in the box. Um, and then I think you know look with the really big ones, I think you've got good and bad, right? Um, I think you've got the good and bad. I, I I always think about nuclear weapons, right? It's like, you know, nuclear weapons, like of all the technologies you think maybe we should not have built as a species, maybe <laughs> nuclear weapons would be that that thing. But it's like, maybe, you know, we're what, 75 years in now, and, you know, we haven't had World War III. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe the existence of nuclear weapons, it means that a billion people who would have died in world in a, in a conventional World War III in the 1970s or something, you know, didn't didn't die. Um, yeah. And so maybe, maybe they've actually kept the peace this whole time. And so, you know. But my, my, it, 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 yeah. On the topic of World War III, uh, could, could I just ask you about China? Sure. And has has China kind of emancipated itself from basically Silicon Valley? Has it ha, has its control of the internet enabled it to to stand clear of that? And and is that is that a threat to the the Silicon Valley based internet that we have in the West? Well, I think there's two uh, two part two parts of that. We can we can talk about either one. So one is just like the, the actual Chinese tech industry. And to what extent is it able to function kind of independently of the U.S.? Um, and then the other question is like um, that I think you're asking is more around the Great Firewall um, yeah, and yeah. sort of the, the Chinese ability to kind of harness the Internet and restrict its impact. And I suppose also to, 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 um, to use the Internet to attack the West, because, you know, you don't need nuclear weapons if you can use hackers Tweets. or whatever to, uh, no, but to kind of disable, I don't know, power stations in the U.S. I mean, that would be... Yeah, yeah, something also, that, yeah. that 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 tech has has made possible in a way that simply wouldn't have been possible kind of forty years ago. Yeah, that's true. So there is this there is this concept that sort of you know, sometimes hear the term network centric warfare, kind of you know irregular warfare happening online. Um, you know, there there is this. This is something I, I do. I talk to people in Washington about. Um, you know, there there's you know there's there's so called you know doctrine doctrines of war, right? So there's you know military planners, right? In any any big country, have all these theories about basically what counts as a military attack, what counts as an act of war. You know what are you know what retaliations happen like if you know if you know if if you know if they shoot down one of our jet fighters what do we do right and at what point do they go it doesn't go from a you know kind of a skirmish to a war and so forth um you know leading all the way up to and including you know nuclear nuclear strikes um as of right now to my knowledge there's no doctrine of war for what you might call online warfare right um and so you know the russians hack this the chinese hack that this that the other thing you know <laughs> whatever you know irs records voting machines power plants um hospitals um, you know, who's behind all these ransomware attacks, um, you know, where are they being launched from, who, you know, somebody, you know, trialing those, 
um, you know, and so forth and so on. And at least right now, I get the sense that that's this is a very fuzzy topic. Um, in the sense that, like, it was supposed to say, nobody in DC has been able to answer the question for me of X, Y, and Z happen online, and it therefore results in real-world military retaliation. Like that—that right. that doctrine literally yeah. doesn't exist. Now, I would—I would just—I would bucket this in with just this more general concept of irregular warfare, um, which is basically right, sort of non-traditional warfare. Um, you know, aimed at basically, inter, inter, you know, inter, you know. So in, in the old days, it would have been like you know sabotage, right? As an example. Um, now. The optimist in me basically says, if we're arguing about irregular warfare, we're in pretty good shape, right? Because yeah. you'd much rather sit around and worry about irregular warfare than regular warfare. So I, I, I think probably this means we're doing okay. Okay, fair enough. But what? Um, here's a here's a question, a slightly odd question. So obviously in this podcast, most of the time we look backwards, um, and I'm I'm sort of conscious that. Most of the things that we use this new technology for are things that we kind of predicted we'd use it for back in the 1980s. So, you know, you buy things from your computer screen, you, 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 you talk to your friends, you exchange ideas, you read the newspaper online. I mean, people were saying we would do that one day, you know, in 1975 or 1980. What's coming though? I mean, what's, what's next that we haven't foreseen or, or that people like me and Tom who don't know anything about technology? haven't foreseen where, where do you think we're going with this yeah so the thing that just keeps surprising me over and over again and this is where i'm trying to spend a lot of time trying to figure this out right now um in, in, our, in our in our in our day job um it's it, it's the internet is an enabler and a catalyst for movements right um it, like social movements right and and, and i go so far as to say probably the right term is cults um uh, right. right um and you know we we talked about this a little bit with the you know the, the politics conversation that we talked but but i would just say more in general um you know you just see it, it's just that the things i've just been shocked by routinely um i forget if you get the press as much over there but you know this whole thing with gamestop um and uh you know this this big stock market kind of thing that happened like six months ago you know where right. basically this 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 basically crew of like random people on reddit got together and basically just creamed <laughs> the living hell out of these hedge funds um like you know what you just see now basically is like these just the you know these these incredible movements well and you, you mentioned woke like woke is another one of these right woke, woke is this like very powerful energized internet movement right q QAnon would be part of that as well yeah exactly so QAnon, QAnon, QAnon. So there's there's this there's this there's this uh, there's been this concept in the gaming industry for many years called the augmented reality game ARG, um, and it's this idea that you'll have games that basically play out in a hybrid of like basically a, a, a virtual environment, but also in the real world. And there have been these like ARGs over the years that the people have built, where it's like basically it's like you know there's, there's this one game where you get, basically get to be a spy and like you know you get you get a call at your, your desk at three in the afternoon and you have to go you know pick up you know whatever the secret package is this or that take, you know this and that and then there's you know secret emails you have to decrypt and so forth and so they try to kind of immerse you in this kind of fantasy you know kind of half virtual half real kind of fantasy so the ARGs never went mainstream like that nobody ever was able to figure out the formula um to actually have these things take as compared to just a video game um in technical terms uh QAnon is the first uh mass ARG um, right right like somebody's running this thing right. <laughs> and there are theories now as to who it is but like somebody's running this thing and it you know quite literally it's your point like it, it's an online phenomenon that then literally like you know jumped out and now you see it present at every you know basically at, at you know there's certain kinds of political rallies and so forth where you're in certain places in the country where it's just it's, it's, it's very prominent um and so yeah no that that's a that that's a great example um and i think yeah i think it's you know it's it's maybe it's this I mean, if you wanted to get kind of really kind of <laughs> say pseudo profound, uh, you know, look, you could, you could kind of say, look, you know, kind of modern, you know, Western 
culture, capitalism, so forth, right? The standard critique is it kind of, you know, atomized, you know, kind of, you know, eliminated a lot of the historical connections that people feel to kind of family or tribe, right? Or society or culture. Um, and, you know, it may be that, the, you know, people have been basically looking for meaning, you know, traditional religion has been collapsing. And so people, there's this meaning void in people's lives. And like, if you want meaning, you can almost certainly find it somewhere online. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's, that's pseudo profound at all. I think that's exactly what's happening. That people yeah. find community, cohesion, a sense of purpose, a sense of who who's on your side, who you need to hate. I mean, they get all that um, online, don't they? Yeah, I think so. I think increasingly that I think increasingly that's the case. Um, we're actually seeing it in business. Like I would say that, like um, I'll just give you an example. I you know cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. You know, I say Bitcoin is a movement, right? Um, and there's just like this. Well, I'll just give you an example. Like there was just this. There's this attempt recently. You know, Washington's trying to figure out what to do with all this stuff all the time. So they attach this Bitcoin basically legislation to this uh, whatever this big uh, infrastructure package they're doing. Um, and uh, and there was this mass uprising of all of the Bitcoin aficionados, right, in the U.S. who were like, wait a minute, like you can't do that. Like this is our thing. You can't take it away. Um, or, you know, Tesla, I think is another one of these stories, right? Where it's like, you know, is Tesla a car company or is it a global, you know, sort of science, you know, movement, um, you know, to save the planet? Um, where, you know, the way that you participate in the movement is you follow Elon Musk, you know, you hang on his every word um, and you, you know, proselytize his gospel. And then, <laughs> by the way, you know, you buy the car and you buy the stock. Um, and, you know, Tesla, I don't know if this is still the case, but there was a point not that long ago when Tesla... Tesla's stock was worth more than every other uh, global car company combined, right? Yeah. And like, why would that be? Well, maybe it's because Tesla's going to just like be the best, you know, car company of all time, which is certainly possible. But maybe it's just because like people aren't just buying its stock because they like the financials of the company. Maybe it's part of being the movement. Um, and by the way, maybe that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Maybe the yeah. fact that Elon has such a movement, you know, there's no movement behind Ford, right? There, there, there used to be like 100 years ago. Henry Ford was the leader of a movement, but like Ford Motor Company today, there's no movement. In Toyota, there's no movement, but like but, Tesla, there's a movement. So right? Apple, Apple remains yeah. a kind of movement. I was about to say it? Apple. Yeah. Or, I mean, or Apple, Coca-Cola yeah. or, or Levi's or McDonald's, especially in the you know the Eastern Bloc or something. I mean, they were but Apple, they were signifiers Apple, of 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 but polit- political meaning and stuff. Yeah, but, but 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 Apple. I mean, it was it it it, it almost died in the nineties, didn't it? And then it it, it kind of. It like a kind of expanding empire. It recovered and the next music and film <laughs> and TV yeah. and phones and everything. And um, I mean, I would say that's the kind of the, the, the classic example. And, and that's why it's, is it still the, the largest company in the world? I mean, it was, it seems is. to be. Yeah. I mean, it is. And by the way, the guy, the guy, you know, Steve came down from the mountain with a tablet. <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> well, I, I think and that's tablet, probably, and the, and, the, and the tablet will tell you exactly what to believe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Buy another Apple product is generally what it's <laughs> what it's saying. Um, exactly. Mark, I think that's the perfect note on which to end. Um, can't thank you enough for this. Um, Good. It's been a blast, and thank it's you very kind much, of, Mark. You know, as Dominic says, normally we spend the time um, looking backwards, but it's been very energizing to look forwards as well. So the rest is the future. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com dot com.